Hey everyone, we're coming to Salt Lake City, Utah and Phoenix, Arizona this fall. Yeah, October 23rd, we're going to be at Salt Lake City's Grand Theater. And then the next night, October 24th, we'll be in Phoenix. And we added a second show to our Melbourne show, right? That's right, a second earlier show in Melbourne. So uh, you can get all the information for all of these shows at sysklive.com. Welcome to Stuff You Should Know from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark, and this is Charles W. Chuck Bryant, and Jerry's over there. So why don't you pull up a chair, kick back, and tell us about your problems, because this is psychology stuff. <laughs> we should just call this episode the Stanford Prison Experiment, a.k.a. perhaps the hackiest experiment of all time, and it's really not an experiment anyway. No. But it's the most famous psychology experiment ever. Yeah, I got kind of ticked off while I was researching this. Yeah, you should, man. Because I used to think it was cool. Like, oh, man, what a cool experiment. Yeah, everybody's evil at its core. At but, the core. Yeah, then I researched it, and I was like, this is a bunch of BS. All this, of it. This is one of the worst executed experiments I've ever heard of. That is so funny because I, while I was researching this, I was like, I'm going to have to keep it together. Maybe at the end I can really go off or no, whatever. let's go off at the beginning. That's great, man. <laughs> yeah. I watched the, the movie today too. The 2015 one? Yeah. How was it? How was Billy Crudup? Because I loved him in uh, Almost Famous. Uh, well, I'm a fan. He's He was good. Um, but like, I don't know, the movie A was a, pretty sensationalized as far as the violence. Like, they showed a lot of straight-up physical violence in the movie, mm-hmm. which supposedly didn't occur. Right. Um, like beating them with billy clubs mm-hmm. and hog-tying them and, like, like real violence. Hollywood. <laughs> Actually, these days I should say Atlanta. Yeah. Uh, Yollywood is what they call it. Oh, there you go. Perfect. <laughs> that's, that's perfect. That sounds like a Norman Reedus creation. Yeah, it might have been. Yeah. Uh, Shout and, out to Norman Reedus. <laughs> and then... Uh, what was I saying? Oh, um, it, it, I don't feel like it came down hard enough on no. on this Yahoo. What was the guy's name? Zimbardo. Yeah, Zimbardo for just crafting a really poor, doing a very poor job at crafting a sci- supposedly scientific experiment. No, he was like the driving force behind that movie getting made. Apparently, he'd been trying to get a movie made in America. He seems to be a pretty shameless self-promoter. Decades, yes. Yeah. It's not a good quality in a social psychologist. No. So we're going to see, <laughs> I guess we'll let the cat out of the bag, but we'll, we shall see that um, the Stanford Prison Experiment, one of the most famous experiments in the annals of psychology, mm-hmm. is not an experiment at all. No. It, its findings are wide open to interpretation. Yeah. And it was conducted by a showman, basically. Yeah, I mean, you know it's a red flag when you don't publish your findings in a medical journal. You publish them in New York. Was it New York Magazine? New York Times Magazine. The Hodgman's rag. Well, a great rag, but it, that's not the place to go publish scientific findings. No, peer-reviewed journals are. Yeah. And they, they circumvented that. Yeah, but for very good reasons. All right, so let's let's talk about the outline. So let's go back to the beginning, right? Yeah, back to the year of my birth, 1971. Wow. And Stanford, at Stanford University. Sure. Which is what, Palo Alto? Yeah. Nice. Go uh, 
fighting sequoias. What is there? They have like a big old sequoia on their logo. I think it's like a, and then they have a, a, a sequoia with its fists up. Or is that I a leprechaun? Know. Oh, that's Notre Dame I'm thinking of. I, I do feel like it has something oh, to do oh, with trees. I, Chuck's looking it up, everybody, so let me stall. It is a tree. <laughs> the Stanford tree? Well, I don't know what the mascot is, but there's definitely a tree associated. No, as like I looked a, it up. The Stanford tree. Oh, okay. Cool. And, and the first question is, why is it a tree? Uh-huh. <laughs> Well, what's the answer? Well, I mean, I'm sure it's just because of where it is in California, but that doesn't answer the real question, which is why would you have a tree? Right. Phillips and Bardo's sitting there like, quit stalling. Get to the <laughs> get to the heckling. He's still around. Yeah, he is. So, um, All right. We're at Stanford. It's 1971. Yeah. We're actually in the basement of uh, one of the buildings at Stanford, Stanford University. I think like Campbell Hall or something like that. And I think August of 1971 – there were um, 24 young men, almost all of them white. I think one of them was Asian-American. Mm-hmm. And um, they are doing something pretty bizarre in this basement in August of 1971. They've been divided into two groups, guards and prisoners. Supposedly average kids. Right. And they are um, acting out this basically role-playing game of... Guards versus prisoners. For 15 bucks a day. In a simulated prison in the basement of this, this hall at Stanford University. Yeah, which would be about $93 today, uh, funded by the U.S. Office of Naval Research. Is that right? So it would be 93 bucks a day? Mm-hmm. And it was originally going to be two weeks, so I'm sure some of these guys were like, heck yeah. Yeah, I mean, I kind of forgot what it was like to be a college student. That, that'd be, uh, you know, what, between 12 and 1400 bucks. Starting off your summer, it'd be uh, about thirteen thirteen hundred and two dollars if my quick math is correct. <laughs> Good scratch, yeah, for for a twenty one year old. Yeah, two weeks on summer break. That's right. So uh, you were divided into two lots, like you said. Um, they asked people um, supposedly what you wanted to be, unless this was purely a movie creation. And I did try and look up and try and find out the differences. Yeah. Um, but they supposedly asked him, and uh, most everyone said, or in fact everyone said prisoner. Mm-hmm. Uh, and one of the reactions from who ended up being the bad guard, uh, the guy said, uh, they asked him why, and he's like, because nobody likes guards. Right. He's like, why would anyone want to be a guard? Yeah. Because they thought, we'll just be prisoners because they just will lay around and smoke cigarettes. Right. So we'll uh, – we'll, and we'll – kind of unpack what that suggests later on. Sure. Okay, so you've got these these guys, and they're down here for this experiment. And so coming at it from the way, this is the popular interpretation of what happened at the Stanford Prison Experiment, okay? Yes. You've You've got 12 guards and 12 prisoners. The prisoners had been arrested, by the way. By the real Palo Alto police. Yeah, they weren't told when, but like the real cops came by, arrested each one of them for, you know, a variety of crimes. Booked them at the Palo Alto yep. police station and then transported them to the jail, the fake jail in uh, at Stanford. Yeah, they call it the Stanford County Jail. And they did a legit job. They put up signs. They had these rooms decked out like jail cells. They had a, a hole. Um, they did a really believable job of making this seem like a, a prison environment at least. Right. So um, you've got these these prisoners who've been delivered. You've got these guards who are waiting there for them. And um, 
as as far as Zimbardo's ever said, these these guards were told you have to protect the prison and everything else is up to you. The only rule is there's no physical punishment. We're just here to observe. Yeah, like here's your uniforms. Here's your sunglasses. Yeah, and then the prisoners were booked in with wearing smocks. Yeah. No shoes, no underwear. Yeah, naked under the smocks. Chained at the ankles. And then they wore like um, those stocking cap do-rags. They had a panty on their head. To simulate <laughs> <laughs> to simulate uh, they're having their head shaved. Right. Uh, and, you know, this is the, the early 70s, so most of them had these big uh, afros and long hair and stuff right. under these... Uh, panties. Right. So um, this is, like, at first everything's pretty normal. The guards don't quite know what to do. They're a little timid. Mm -hmm. The prisoners apparently relished this immediately and started, like, finding where the guards' boundaries were. And they started to band together. And there was actually, I think on day two, the, the the turnover from day one to two, there was a prisoner riot. Yeah, I mean, they, um, like you said, they were sort of laughing at first. And I think we didn't mention, too, and this is will end up being very, very problematic. And the first sign that he didn't do a good job, Zimbardo actually acted as the superintendent of the prison, mm -hmm. involved himself in his own experiment, and had one of a, he had some uh, graduate assistants that were assisting in the program. They acted as a uh, parole board, and uh, one of them was the warden. That was, yeah, a... a Undergrad, actually. Named, oh, were they undergrad uh, his, assistants? Well, the the warden Jaffe, his last name was Jaffe. He was an undergrad at the time, and actually, he had come up with the experiment on his own. Oh, he was the guy, huh? Uh huh. And then um, Zimbardo was like, "This is a really good idea. Let's do this for real." Imagine the press. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, like you said, it it escalated pretty quickly after kind of laughing at first. These guards got into their roles, to say the least, and. Um, really kind of started being jerks in quick order. And after the prisoners were like, hey, this is kind of funny. Like, you're being, you're not being very cool. Yeah. And they were, you know, kind of smacked down and, and, you know, made to do things like push-ups and jumping jacks. And uh, they would withhold food. And eventually they would, like, take their beds away from them and stuff. Like, it just got worse and worse. And there was, I think, like you said, on day two, a an uprising. Mm -hmm. They got together. Threw the cots off their beds and threw the bed frames against the door and wouldn't let them in. Right. So there was a prisoner riot. Yeah. That's pretty significant, right? Um, and what's e equally significant is that the guards, by the second day, started to show signs of, like, real cruelty yeah. toward the prisoners. They started treating them very poorly. Um, they started engaging in basically acts of torture, like waking them up randomly in the middle of the night, mm -hmm. making them get up. Uh, like you said, push-ups, which is interpreted as um, physical punishment. Yeah. Because, again, you couldn't, you couldn't hit them with the rubber hose. You couldn't hit them with the baton. You couldn't punch them. But if you make somebody do a bunch of push-ups, that's physical punishment, too. Yeah. And it was within the bounds, apparently. Yeah, they were referred to only by their prison numbers. They would never say their names. They were made to memorize everyone else's prison number. And, like, they would line them up and tell them to repeat their numbers for, like, an hour if they didn't do it fast enough and then in reverse order, uh, they would get punishment. Mm -hmm. They would do the kind of the classic moves of 
holding one responsible for the punishment of others. Yeah, that's a that's a big one. Like if you didn't make your bed good enough, then no one could go to sleep, stuff mm-hmm. like that. The guards also innovated um, the uh, carrots here or there too. They actually made one cell, like a good cell. Like they put a bed in it yeah. with like bedding. Um, if you were in that cell, you were eligible for like good meals, yeah. like better than what the other prisoners had. And there were room for three inmates in there at a time. And so it instilled this sense of competition and and um, skullduggery, I guess backstabbery, among the prisoners to, to, to curry favor <laughs> with the guards, like by informing on the other ones yeah. so that you could get a chance to be in like the nice cell. Yeah, and I think even before that, like when they went to do the, when they went to stage the uprising, I don't think there were three rooms of three, and I think six of them, two of the rooms participated, mm-hmm. and one of the rooms did not. And uh, because not all the guys, uh, you know, not all the prisoners like rebelled as much. Some of them just kind of went along with it. Interestingly, some of the guards did not descend into cruelty. Right. They actually, some of them did like favors, went out of their way to be nice to the Uh prisoners. But and um, the grabster who wrote this article points out very significantly, they didn't stand up to the cruel guards or officially object to their, their behavior. Right. They went along with it. But then they thought they had to in their own right in their own way. They they did what they could to retain their humanity. So there's two huge points. And one of them, there's one among the guards and one among the prisoners. And the one among the prisoners comes 36 hours after the beginning of the um, of the experiment. And this prisoner, his name, it would later be revealed was Douglas Corpy. Um, He had an emotional breakdown, a nervous breakdown. 36 hours after this, this, this experiment starts, one of the prisoners becomes so emotionally involved in this simulated prison at the cruelty, the simulated supposedly cruelty of the guards that he had a nervous breakdown well, and had to be, yeah. had to be removed from the, um, the experiment. And this is like, this is in Bardo's, this is the official line for the Stanford prison experiment. Oh, so we're still playing for, along? Right. And has been for decades. <laughs> Yeah, he also said that uh, one of them broke out in a psychosomatic rash. There mm-hmm. was um, all manner of uh, of various levels of psychological breakdowns happening. On the other side, the the big star among the guards was a guy named John Wayne, who you referenced earlier. Yeah, his name was uh, Dave Eshelman, mm-hmm. and he was the one who he was the ringleader. He's the one that came out as the most brutal guard mm-hmm. of them all, and all the other guards kind of fell in line behind him right. and took their cues from him. So this whole thing's going on. This is crazy town. This place in in six days, six days, this thing descends into chaos. It's supposed to be two weeks. Yes, there was there was um, rumors that there was going to be a breakout, and so they moved the experiment. Um, there were uh, that that guy uh, Douglas Corpy, who mm. had a nervous breakdown, ended up getting put into the hole, um, this broom closet, yeah. for uh, I think overnight, and was finally released because the the um, researchers that the actually stepped in and said you should probably let him out. Um, it was it was just utter chaos, and then eventually um, Philip Zimbardo's girlfriend at the time, a, a woman named Christine Mas- Maslock, yeah, his wife to be. Um, oh, she married him, huh? Yeah, still married. Uh, um, so she came and just dropped in to see how things were going and was so outraged at what she saw that she was like, you, you're so far beyond the line. You have to stop this now. Like, this is, this is descended into chaos. You can't do this. These people are 
treating these these prisoners horribly. Like, how are you letting this go on? And he went, I'm okay. <laughs> Fine. <laughs> and so the next day he canceled the experiment. Again, after six days, and it was scheduled to go on for two weeks. And so he comes out, tells the world uh-huh. in this New York Times magazine, guys, if I took you, if I took you, Josh, and I took you, Chuck, and put you mm-hmm. as guard and prisoner in a, even a simulated prison and put a smock on Josh and took his underwear off and uh, put a stocking on his head <laughs> and gave Chuck a baton and some glasses, <laughs> Chuck would beat Josh up. Well, and that- <laughs> Josh would probably have his spirit broken and have a nervous breakdown. It's in everybody. Evil is in everybody. Yeah. Crumbling at the first sign of adversity is in everybody. We're all just pathetic weaklings. Stanford Prison Experiment. And he ran off and said, I'm famous. All right. That's a great setup. Mm-hmm. So we'll take a break here and come back and talk a little bit about the more about the experiment and the realities of it right after this. So you've got John Wayne in there. Uh, I don't think we mentioned that he took on the persona of the uh, prison boss and Cool Hand Luke. Yeah. He, he did a fake Southern accent and everything <laughs> and dove right into this role. Um, if you talk to Dave Eshelman today, he will say he's very much on record as saying, I'm not some jerk. Uh, and I didn't get off on being sadistic. He mm-hmm. said, I wanted to do what they paid me $15 a day to do, which was to be a, a prison guard and to treat these guys poorly. Right. And so I, cre- you know, he said, I did some drama in high school and I literally acted this part as well as I could. That was, a, that I felt was expected and, and wanted from me. Right. And I put on this fake Southern accent. And if you like ask pe- friends and family today, they would laugh at this because I'm really not this guy at all. Right. Because he really comes off as, as a bit of a villain in this movie for sure. Well, he perpetrated real cruelty mm-hmm. on other people. And we'll yeah. get to that later. He and what said that he feels bad later. about it, too. And, and he should. Yeah. Um, because the other people actually did suffer under this guy's leadership as the, the ringleader of the mean guards. Right. Like, they wore pink on Wednesday. It was terrible everywhere, right? <laughs> so um, he really should feel bad, and apparently he does. I saw that all over the place, too, that yeah. he feels bad for it. But the point is, is that he has said... Like this didn't happen organically. Like I, I, I was, in, I was, in, I felt encouraged to to play this role. Right. That's a big deal because the findings of the Stanford Prison Experiment say if you take some people and say you're a guard, give them you're some a prisoner, power, and you will turn evil. They will turn evil within a day. Yeah. A day they said about this guy, and this guy's like, no, I was just. Like you said, doing my job, but they were paying me 15 bucks a day for. Yeah. Let's put that one to the side. All right, put a pin in that. Let's go visit with Douglas Corpy, who was the prisoner who, in 36 short hours of this simulated prison experiment, lost his marbles and had a nervous breakdown and had to go home, right? One of the other two pillars of the findings that people are either evil or easily crumble in the face of adversity Mm -hmm. from the Stanford prison experiment. And again, this is how this thing's been taught for like 50 years, okay? Yeah. So Corpy comes out and says, I was faking that. (laughs) 
and I put on a big act so I could get out of there because it sucked. And I didn't want to be there anymore. Right. So I faked like I was ha- – and he, he, he like, one of his quotes was uh, – I don't have it here, but he basically said, like, any trained clinician would have been able to see right through this. Like, when right. I hear the tapes years later, mm-hmm. it's like I'm not an actor. I wasn't – like, apparently the John Wayne guy at least had been in, like, high school plays. And college, too, I think. Yeah, and he was like, I, I was not an actor. And it was so clear to me looking back at these tapes – that I was faking it. Faking a nervous breakdown. Yeah, faking Douglas a nervous Kirby. breakdown to get out of there. Right. So the reason why he said later that he did fake this nervous breakdown is because he took the job because he thought he'd just be laying around, like you said, smoking cigarettes, being a, a prisoner. Yeah. And he would get to study for the GRE. He was about oh, to enter grad school. I didn't see that. Well, they said, no, you can't have your books. No, they didn't give him anything. And this guy was like, whoa, 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 wait a minute. This is day one. He's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like, I need those books. I'm taking the GRE, basically leaving here after two weeks and going to take the test. Like, I've got to spend this two weeks studying. They're like, you can't have your books. So he quickly saw that the only way out was to fake this nervous breakdown. And Billy Crudup went in there and said, why is everyone saying, whoa, whoa, whoa? <laughs> right. Only I can say, whoa, whoa, whoa. Whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> uh, yeah, so we've kind of poo-pooed the two major findings from the study already. So that's, that's a huge deal, right? Because, again, the idea is that if you put people, any random people, remember, these are just average, like, middle, middle-class white kids— mm-hmm. um, which if, is another problem. Right. If you put if you put any well, you know, 1971, that means everybody. Right. That's the whole world, right? Yeah. If you put anybody in the world in this situation, they're going to either turn evil or lose their marbles. So, um, those are the two findings. That's what everybody took it as at first. It later came out, no, this guy was acting, this guy was faking. So what else do we have then? Well, we have this idea that Zimbardo insinuated himself as part of the experiment, and that actually created the findings from the Stanford Prison Experiment. So should we put a pin in that? Or sure. you want to talk about that now? No, no, I want to go, I want to go where you want to go. Buddy. All right, let's put a pin in that then and talk about a little bit more about what went on that week. Um, they had everything from uh, visitation, like you could write a letter to your family or girlfriend or whoever you wanted to come visit you mm-hmm. uh, to ask for visitation rights, and the family came in. And they did. They came in and visited for an hour, and uh, there were, in some cases, parents were like, I don't know about this. This is, like, this is, seems like a really weird thing. Right. And Zimbardo would be like, oh, no, it's totally fine. Like, you know, they're— I'm they're, a psychologist. Yeah, like, they want to be here. Like, ask them. And the, the kids, you know, they did say that they wanted to stay. Okay. Which is which is important. Okay, so what all, what else is important is like like no one in the visiting hour I don't think we're like get me out of here. Okay. They're all like no this is all part of the part of the act. Okay. Essentially. All right. Um they had parole uh hearings inside the course of a week somehow. They said that if they uh they could be released if they would forfeit the money uh and this is after like, I don't know how many of the 6 days but mm-hmm. um they could not get paid if and be paroled. If they went in front of the parole board, they went in front of the parole board. Some of them did. And most of the prisoners said that they would give up their money, in fact. And the parole members, like uh, like I said, they were the graduate assistants. They even had one um, former prisoner, uh, this guy that like was a 15-year mm-hmm. uh, Quentin yeah, inmate, 15- or 17-year inmate on the board that I guess Sam uh, Zimbardo, I want to call him 
Zamboni. So he actually was a friend of Jaffe's, the guy who originally actually conceived oh, okay. of this That's experiment as an undergrad. So gotcha. he brought him in on it. Right. So he was on the parole board, and he was kind of one of the ones, um, at least in the film version, that was kind of saying, like, no, this is like how it is. Like, you, you should keep it going. Right. But I don't know how much of that was dramatized. I, I don't either. That's a, that's a, that's a, one of the problems with this is, you know, so much of the documentation has been not released over the years. And when yeah. it does get released, it contradicts the official line. And um, it's very tough to separate truth from fiction, especially when you introduce a Hollywood movie into the whole thing just to, just to drive those nails in the coffin, too. Yeah, of, and of so reality in fact. There's been a lot of uh in the years since a lot of complaints that a lot of these, you know, kids were screaming I want to go home, I want to go home. And for his part, Zimbardo said in the contract it says I want to exit the experiment right. is the official line to say and mm-hmm. they could have gone home. And he was like, but you hear, no one ever said I want to exit the experiment. They would say, I want my mommy, or I'm going crazy, mm-hmm. or my God, please stop this, please mm-hmm. stop this. Right. But they never said those exact words. The safe phrase. The sa- Yeah, the safe phrase. But it turns out that's bunk too, right? Yeah. It turns out that if you look at the contract that they had that he's referencing that, that say the rules and everything in the agreement, there's no safe word to be mentioned. It certainly doesn't say if you say, I want to quit the experiment— you get released from the experiment. So he's just flat out lying about that then. That's from what I understand, yes. And what article was this that you sent? There's a really good takedown um, in Medium called The right. um, the uh, Lifespan of a Lie. Yeah, it's a good one. Um, and it's based on, that title's based on a, I think a, a documentary by a, a documentary or a book by a, yeah, a French filmmaker um, which, uh, who titled his version uh, The Birth of a Lie. And it's basically about how the Stanford prison experiment was just basically, it was bunk from the get-go, which we'll kind of pick that apart in a little bit. And that it's just fascinatingly has been perpetuated over, again, basically 50 years. It just entered the, the, the cultural zeitgeist and just stayed like yeah. an infection. Uh, all right, some other things that happened to make it realistic. They brought in... Um, a lawyer when parents asked for one and played along like mm-hmm. it was real. They brought in a chaplain who came in to speak to prisoners, uh, and he played along with it too. Yeah. Uh, they basically did everything that you would think would happen in a real prison um, on, on a slightly scaled-down level. Right, but the upshot of all of this is Zimbardo saying, like, do you see what's going on here, everybody? Yeah. Like, I just put some guys in, like nine guys in at a time or 12 guys as guards, 12 guys as prisoners, and their parents came for visiting hours. A lawyer came. That's, the, that's how real the simulated prison became in people's minds. Just imagine what a real prison's like, yeah. right? So, um, and he was saying they could have left at any time if they just said the safe word and no one ever said the safe word. There is some evidence that these people were basically kept there against their will. Um, especially after Douglas Corpy basically faked his emotional breakdown and then was thrown into a broom closet in in retaliation for it. Yeah. Um, That he should have very, very clearly should have been left or allowed to leave. And to even be led to think that you couldn't leave, Mm -hmm. which is apparently the idea that spread throughout the prisoners, um, that would be like keeping someone against their will. Yeah, and he did leave, but was supposed to agreed to come back supposedly. Mm-hmm. 
to like play a different role as a prisoner who like maybe escaped and came back, I think. Okay. But didn't come back. Right. And um, f- I think five people were released early before the, the whole experiment was called off. All prisoners, no guards left the experiment, which is telling. Yeah, uh, well, and they were working in shifts, though, which is important. Okay, that is a big one, too. Um, but, but if you consider that no one asked to be a guard, they all asked to be prisoners, but then none of the guards left the experiment. Right. That's, to me, that's interesting on its face, right? Sure. There's something to that. But um, there, the, the whole thing just kind of falling apart after Zimbardo's girlfriend um, at the time came. Uh, the idea that up to this point, these people had engaged in this fantasy and thought that they couldn't leave when they really could, mm-hmm. that's controversial in and of itself. Sure. Because, again, there's evidence that they were led to believe they, they couldn't leave. And that's different. That changes things entirely. Yeah. So you want to take another break and then pick this apart some more? <laughs> yeah, let's do it. Kind of fun. The final takedown. I'm I'm waiting for <laughs> I'm waiting for Philip Zimbardo to release a book about like our jackhammer episode. <laughs> That's fine. I would read it. So, uh, all right. So where are we here? Basically, we're at the point where uh, he has he has ended the experiment, and now we're dealing with the fallout since 1971 and how this should be viewed. One of the big things that came out of that French book, The Birth of a Lie, is. The um, the filmmaker unearthed a recording that was I don't know where he found it, but they the, he found it and released the transcript of it that clearly has, um, if not Zimbardo, at least Jaffe, definitely Jaffe, coaching the um, the guards. Yeah, to be more brutal. Right, be a, a tough guard. Just think of like how the pigs do it and do it like that. I think is what the quote was, right? Yeah, when the whole idea of this thing is to try and prove that without any influence, yes. this is what happens. Right. So there's a couple of things that happen. Method- methodologically, there's a lot of things that happen the moment they started coaching those guards. Number one, they took any organicness out of their behavior. They were then doing what they thought they were expected to do, like John Wayne. Yeah, for sure. Who just went over the top is what it was. Mm-hmm. Um, and then number two, they made them co-experimenters. Yeah. Like the whole thing was supposed to be guards and prisoners. And we're going to watch. As test subjects yeah. or participants. And when you coach the, the guards, you're, they're co-experimenters now. Now the experiment's entirely on the, on the prisoners, which you can say, okay, well, then those findings still worked. Well, that gets thrown out when you base the whole thing on a guy who is faking. Right. Right. But, but you, you make the guards co-experimenters and you just completely take out any objectivity from this experiment. That's problem one with the methodology. Well, and the fact we already mentioned that one of one of the researchers was a warden and Zim, uh, I keep on to call him Zambrano. <laughs> That's fine. Go ahead. Zimbardo. Zamboni himself was the superintendent. Like the minute he decided to do that, like I looked up, I think he was like in his late thirties when he did this. Mm-hmm. How did he not like, was he that bad at no. doing his job? How did he not know? Like, Wait a minute. This will taint the experiment. Do you want to talk about why 
the people think that he was so yeah okay so he was a uh, he wasn't I think still is a social activist for sure mm-hmm. and he had decided um, and I can't really disagree with him that prisons were brutal places where brutality lived and that they were inherently brutal. And so if you take somebody and put them into this place, you're doing a real disservice to humanity by by throwing somebody in a brutal place that you know is brutal. So his aim was to get reform to happen. Yes, from the outset. Well, I mean, I can't fault that, but you can't call it a scientific experiment either. No. And it actually supposedly backfired as well because one interpretation of his findings is that it's all or nothing with prisons. Prisons are inherently brutal uh, or you can't have them. So either you have prisons and you have brutal prisons or you have no prisons. And so faced with that choice and with rising crime rates in the 70s, um, a lot of people doubled down on getting tough and made prisons even worse and built more prisons and said, T.S., we're not even going to try to like reform you anymore. We're just going to send you to these brutal places that are inherently brutal and there's nothing we can do about it. So it would have it would have backfired in that sense. But in, in, in the idea that he was doing something with the best interests of his fellow people uh, at heart, mm-hmm. again, like you said, it's, it's tough to fault him for that. He just really, really gave social psychology a black eye. Yeah, so one of the other things he did wrong, um, and this one I just can't figure out either, uh, is he didn't have a control group. And one of his, um, this guy wasn't in the experiment, but one of his colleagues uh, came by one day and was like, you know, what's your control? What's your independent variable? Yeah, and he was like, what? Yeah. (laughs) He's like, I don't have one. So if you you run an experiment of any sort, um, Grabster uses a great analogy where if you're trying to figure out what the effects of radiation are on tomatoes, mm-hmm. you pick a bunch of tomatoes, you weigh them, you check them for color, um, you make sure that they're identical to another set of tomatoes. Mm-hmm. So you have two sets of basically identical tomatoes. One you irradiate, one you do not, and after a set amount of time, you go back and see what the differences are. And then you can say probably that when you irradiate tomatoes, yeah. these are the effects, and the effects are the differences between the two. Same thing with the prison experiment, yeah, right? Yeah, what, what would you have here? Two different uh, cell blocks mm-hmm. and one that literally isn't coached and completely left alone? That, that's what I would have done for sure. And then one where you're saying, hey, be brutal and yeah. we'll see if everyone falls into these roles. Exactly. That that would have been great. And actually some researchers in 2001. Oh, yeah, they did. They did <laughs> exactly that. They basically did, ran the experiment with just that control group you suggested. Um, it was called the BBC Prison Study. Yeah, Haslam and Riker. Yeah, and basically they did the same thing. They 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 did not do any coaching. They didn't do any intervention. They did the, the thing exactly like you're supposed to or like Zimbardo should have from the outset. Mm-hmm. And um, they found that... They, again, they made the control group to the original Stanford prison experiment. They found that the exact opposite happened. The the prisoners stayed banded together. The guards were totally in disarray um, and disorganized. The brutality never emerged, um, and there wasn't any violence from yeah. what I understand. And this is where it gets really scummy, if you ask me. Uh, Zimbardo found out about this, and supposedly Haslam and Riker said they discovered he was privately writing editors uh, to keep them from getting published and think, claiming that they were fraudulent. Yeah, in the journal that they they released their findings in, he wrote in a, uh, an appendage to their their article and said, "These are the, just don't even listen to these guys." 
I'm Philip Zimbardo. Man. So, yeah, I thought that was pretty scummy, too, if he did that. Um, so you've got, methodologically, there's even more problems, too. If In the, in the original newspaper advertisement, Chuck, he said... Um, Prison experiment. <laughs> Prison experiment. Everybody sign up. Yeah, that was a problem in and of itself. They shouldn't have known what they were doing. No, exactly. Until they showed up, right? So you're going to get a big, wide swath of people. Mm -hmm. And then once they find out what the experiment is, maybe they'll say no thanks or whatever. But this was like attracting um, a 2007 follow-up study found narcissistic, hostile, overly aggressive, authoritarian types like flies to honey. Yeah. Or the opposite. Well, that seems to be the case in this case. Yeah, which was, uh, in fact, one of them was a liberal activist right. who kind of purposely went in there because he thought maybe these findings could be used one day for uh, prison reform. Well, I think also most of the um, – what I got from Jaffe coaching the people to say, like, think about what the pigs would do and then do do that because we really got to show them how, how brutal prisons are. Um, I think everybody who showed up basically was – against prisons. But whether you're against prisons or for them, you were automatically tainted before you even showed up for the interview. Yeah. Because they wrote prison experiment in the ad. So from the outset, there was bias. There was no control group. It attracted a biased cross-section of people. Zimbardo um, participated. Z uh, he was a participant. And that actually, Chuck, led to the second set of findings that Zimbardo had influenced this uh, and become a participant himself. And here's the current interpretation of all of it, okay? This seems to be the current du jour interpretation of the Stanford Prison Experiment. Not that people are inherently cruel right? and uh, inherently will just crumble in the face of authority, although that, that might still stand, but that people will be, are capable of cruelty if they're recruited by an authority figure. Right. The second set, and there's actually been three sets of interpretations. The second set was that Zimbardo inserted himself mm -hmm. and that it actually de demonstrated what's called situationist theory. Yeah, and that's basically that external circumstances are the drivers of human behavior. Right. So the point was not that people are inherently cruel on an individual level. But the situation that they're put in, mm -hmm. they will quickly find those roles. If there's a power structure above them right. that is that has normalized this and is expecting them to fulfill those roles. And this really tied in with, you know, this is 1971. People were still really trying to figure out what the heck had just happened with the Nazis. It was only like 25, 26 years before. Yeah. So this idea that this banality of evil, this made perfect sense in that in that respect, right? There is a bureaucracy that had normalized evil, mm -hmm. and you were just following orders. Right. That was the second interpretation of the Stanford Prison Experiment. Yeah, well, and not just the Nazis, but everything <laughs> like the Vietnam War, which was, I mean, this was 1971. Right. And like the Miley Massacre mm -hmm. and you know, I was just following orders. Like right. this tied in, this has his fingers in a lot of relevant politics of the day. Right. So um, apparently it also tied in really well to Attica and Zimbardo must've just couldn't believe his, his good fortune that there was a, a the prison bloodiest riot. prison riot in American history yeah. happened like a couple weeks after he made the news in the New York Times magazine with this journal article or this article that he wrote, right? Yeah. But that actually played into it too because apparently 
following orders, a lot of guards just fired blindly into the tear gas smoke of yeah. this prison riot and killed tons of, of unarmed prisoners and hostages. So so Zimbardo's like, okay, that's fine. However we're going to interpret this, I'm cool with that. But the third one, I'm not quite sure that he would be cool with, the current one. Which is bad science. Uh, I think, <laughs> so what I saw is that a lot of social psychologists said, we've known this is bad science all along, but the findings were really interesting and worthwhile. So we didn't throw the baby out with the bathwater. The third one is that, that Zimbardo inserted himself and what this what this this study really showed was that people will engage in acts of cruelty if there is a, a figure of authority recruiting them to what they think is a righteous cause and in this case right. it was zimbardo making the guards co-experimenters by coaching them to be cruel right and in in the name of prison reform ultimately when they showed the world what happens when you put normal people in a prison situation. Yeah, which is what uh, the John Wayne guy very much has said all his life since then is that this is what they I thought they wanted was for me to be a bad guard. Right. So we could prove uh, ultimately that prisons need reform. And that that is why he's still complicit because he's still engaged in these acts of genuine cruelty against the, the prisoners in the study. And that's why he should still feel bad and still does feel bad. But he did it because he was recruited in the name of this righteous cause by somebody who was in authority. So is this being taught this way in classes now? I don't. I think that they, especially once it came out that Zimbardo and at the very least his warden, a co-experimenter, was, was coaching them mm-hmm. to do this and that the organic cruelty is just totally out the window – I, I think they don't know what to do with it right now. They're trying to figure it out, like, how to get these findings across or what to make of them. Because one, uh, one of these quotes from the article you sent, uh, the guy said, I don't think it's scientific fraud in the typical sense. It was never considered to be scientific. It's typically represented in classrooms as a demonstration, mm-hmm. uh, not an experiment, and as a notorious case of ethical malfeasance. Right. So that's almost a fourth takeaway is that, it's an example of how to not do a study correctly. Right. Which is interesting. Oh, yeah. I mean, methodologically inserting yourself, like lying about the findings later on or misinterpreting the results or uh, using spin. It's Yeah, there's a lot here. But it was approved by the Stanford Human Rights Subjects Review Committee at the time. Those were uh, Zimbardo's experiments who he presented this to. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they're, you know, he still says that it was ethical – well, it was at the time. Under the guidelines, it right. was ethical. But then after, yeah. it, they changed the guidelines. Yeah, you couldn't do this today. No. Or at least not with, like he did it. So uh, I did, you remember the very brief Psychology is Nuts series? I watched that. I did one on the Stanford Prison Experiment. Yeah, I watched that today. Did you? Mm-hmm. What did you think? It was good. Thanks, man. Cute little background. Yeah, I thought so too. <laughs> um, and let's see, you got anything else? No, I mean, boy, I thought we were pretty scathing, but... We uh-huh. were. This is like vaping level scathing. <laughs> this is way worse than vaping. I'm sure the vapors are like, God, they were really hard on that guy. Yeah, the movie, uh, you know, the documentary is probably a little more accurate, but the movie wasn't bad. Yeah. I mean, it's not great. Yeah. But it was okay. It felt like a movie of the week. Gotcha. You it's know? an airplane movie? Yeah. Watch it on your next flight. That's I my recommendation. Thanks, buddy. Uh, well, if you want to know more about the Stanford Prison Experiment... 
Um, type those words in the search bar at HowStuffWorks.com and it'll bring up this Grabster article. And since I said Grabster, it's time for listener mail. Uh, I'm going to call this beautiful landscaping. Hey, guys, I spent the last two years fixing up the yard uh, in our house uh, in Point Pleasant, Pennsylvania. Oh, that sounds like a pleasant place. Yeah, it is. Uh, my husband actually introduced me to your show a few years back. And thank God he did because I've literally listened to you for hours and hours while working in the yard. Nice. It was a huge undertaking. I have a more flexible work schedule than he does, so I volunteered to absorb most of the responsibility, although he did a lot of heavy lifting too. I enjoyed the show so much, I stopped allowing myself to listen to uh, to it any other time. You were only allowed during yard work. This made me much more ready to get outside and get into it. Uh, you guys were with me while I carried literally tons of redstone uphill in buckets, hauling rocks for a firing landing, planted uh, pachysandra, ferns, and hostas in the rockiest soil I've ever had to work with and just clearing away overgrowth. Which a, it sounds like Tanya Harding training for the Olympics <laughs> in that one that one montage. Uh, which it turned out included a fair amount of poison ivy. During it all, I learned about tiny, adorable little creature called the tardigrade, uh, the business of head transplants, the hookworm, her favorite episode, oh, wow. and some haunting information I cannot unhear, uh, such as you provided in the bullfighting and drowning episodes. Mm. You're always very entertaining, full of information. Uh, even when I think it's boring, you make it fun. Uh, there were times you had me LOLing in my backyard, uh, alone and covered in dirt and sweat like a crazy person. Attached are some pictures of the progress, uh, all from your climate-controlled studio. Uh, that is from Sharon Prashinsky. And Sharon, you did a great job. That is one beautiful yard you got going. Yeah, for sure. It is lovely. It is. Nice work. We're glad we could be there with you to help you get up that hill. Yeah, and down the hill, and then back up the hill, and then back down the hill. That's right, and then back up again. Uh, If you want to get in touch with us to let us know how we've helped you out, we love hearing that kind of stuff. If you're Philip Zimbardo, we expect to hear from your lawyer. Um, (laughs) And in the meantime, you can hang out with us at our home on the web, stuffyoushouldknow.com, where you can find all of our social links, and you can also send us an email to stuffpodcast at howstuffworks.com. and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.